baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Conflict, clashes, political strife, social discord. It's the sort of stuff that we report on every day on KCBS, whether it takes the form of violent demonstrations in foreign capitals or name-calling in Washington, D.C. And in recent years, it seems like all this tension just keeps ratcheting up and up and up. But what if the reason the world is becoming a meaner place is actually because we're becoming meaner people? I'm Keith Manconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today's guest argues that over the last 40 years, our world has experienced an erosion of empathy. That is, an erosion in our very ability to understand one another and comprehend each other's struggles. And that as the news suggests, we're living the consequences of that loss every day. That guest is Jamil Taki. He is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. His new book is The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Uh, Dr. Zaki, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's dig into that title for just a moment, War for Kindness, kind of a contradiction in terms right there. But you, there is kind of a call to action in this book, and I want to start with that. What are you saying that we're losing, and what should we be fighting for? Yeah, I realize that war for kindness can sound paradoxical, but I do feel that in this day and age, empathy and social connection with each other can feel like a radical act, like we're pushing back against something. So as you mentioned at the top of the show, there's evidence that our empathy over the last 40 years has been eroding pretty substantially. Uh, according to one major survey, the average American in 2009, less empathic than 75% of Americans just 30 years earlier. And so I think that this can be explained by a number of different social and cultural trends like uh, political polarization, more isolation and stress and sort of more online interactions. And all of these trends are making it harder for us to connect with each other. And so I think that the choice to empathize anyways is something that we need to fight for. And let's make sure that everybody's on the same page here. When we talk about empathy, are we talking about the ability to understand what somebody else is feeling? What are we exactly talking about here? Thank you. I think that every, any conversation about empathy should start with definitions because it's such a malleable word and people use it in different ways. So when scientists talk about empathy, they actually mean uh, several different ways uh, that we respond to each other's emotions. So I always use this example. Let's say that you're having lunch with a friend and he gets a phone call. And you don't know who's on the other side or what they're saying, but it's obviously not good because he starts crying. Well, a bunch of things might happen in you as you sit there with your friend. One, you might become upset yourself, sort of vicariously catching his feelings. That's what we call emotional mm, empathy. Catching feelings. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Almost like a, like a virus or something. Mm. Um, a, another thing is you might try to figure out what your friend is feeling and why. That's what we call cognitive empathy. And third, at least if you're a good friend, you probably care about what he's going through and wish that he would feel better. That's what we call empathic concern or compassion. 
And these pieces of empathy sometimes go together and sometimes split apart, but together they encompass what I mean when I talk about our ability to empathize with each other. All right. So that kind of sets the table a little bit for our listeners, letting us know where we're coming from and also identifies some of the problem that you're looking at. And it is uh, alarming to think that we may be losing the ability uh, to understand one another. I mean, that's a really important ability to have. And uh, you can just imagine the kind of consequences that that would have. But I think an interesting point that you're making in this book is that Empathy is something that we can work on. We can promote it in ourselves. And I don't think that everybody quite thinks of empathy that way. I think that a lot of us just think, oh, he's a mean guy. He's not a mean guy. I'm a nice guy. They're a mean guy. You know, it's kind of these innate qualities that we're born with and we always have. Uh, so maybe to illustrate your point, a, a good place to start is where your book actually starts talking about your own uh, upbringing and uh, a very contentious divorce between your parents, which you say helped train you in empathy. That's right. Yeah. So my parents um, come from very different places. My father from Pakistan and my mother from Peru. And they both moved here for graduate school and met in Pullman, Washington, of all places. Uh, very <laughs> you you got to pick a place. Why not? <laughs> um and, you know, they're both great people with really interesting perspectives. But I think that the reason that they got together was because they had this shared sense of foreignness in the U.S. They were both sort of felt like they were lost and far from home. And that mm. sort of they found solace in each other. Um, but then as they grew more comfortable with the U.S., now they've been here for over 40 years, I feel like they grew less comfortable with each other and realized that they actually didn't have that much in common. And they started splitting up when I was eight, but didn't finish until I was 12. And I'm their only child, um, and so I'm sure many of your listeners have experienced something like this, but you kind of feel like you're stretched across these different realities. You know, like I would have to, when I was with my mom, try to sort out what she was feeling and try to connect with her, sort of figure out rules for connecting with somebody. And then as soon as I got to my dad's house, those rules stopped working. Hmm. And it felt very, like very hard work, um, and yet I knew that I needed to keep on working at connecting with both of them to sort of save my sense of family and it worked and eventually got easier. I would all, I would say that empathy saved me um, and saved my childhood, um, but not because it came naturally, right? It was a skill that I worked at. I always think of my parents' divorce as an empathy gym for me, a place oh. that sort of forced me to work out my ability to care about and understand very different people. And I think that that's one of the most important skills I ever learned. And you feel like you've, you've carried that skill with you into adulthood as well? I mean, they say that research is me-search. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's for nothing that, I, that I've been interested in empathy my whole life. Yeah, quite a focus of your work. I want to remind any listeners that might just be joining us, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today we are asking the question, might the world's heart be hardening? Our guest is Jamil Zaki. He is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. His new book is The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. Let's talk a little bit about what are some of the factors that might be diminishing our empathy. You identify three potential factors, tribalism, isolation, and exhaustion. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. So, I mean, for one, the way that people live has changed fundamentally from how, well, how we evolved, but even how we lived 100 years ago. So, the average, so um, Americans between the age of 18 and 34, for instance, are 10 times as likely to live alone than they were just 100 years ago. Right? So we increasingly live in cities and alone. So we see more people than we ever did before, but we know fewer of them. We're basically uh, alone in a crowd. And what that means is that oftentimes, instead of being our friends or neighbors or confidants, the people we see 
are kind of just in our way. You know, they're just the person who's who's in front of us in traffic or who's blocking us on the sidewalk. We sort of have a harder time seeing each other as people because we're not as connected as we used to be. Now, that's really interesting because there are a lot of different factors happening at the same time. Uh, one could expect, you know, if, if you were just telling somebody 40 years ago, what this technology was going to look like, you could expect a very different outcome. You know, you're saying, oh, well, we're going to have this opportunity to speak with people all over the world. We're going to be able to see their faces, sometimes in video, sometimes in audio. You're going to be able to meet people you would have never been able to meet before. You might think 40 years ago, oh, well, that's going to be an empathy bonanza because we're going to have so many more opportunities to meet so many more people. But you're saying that's really not how it's turning out. Yeah, you're so first of all, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you just said. And let me just back up and say that we we can't exactly pinpoint why empathy has declined because history is not an experiment. You can't repeat it and tinker with different factors and see which one explains it. So we're speculating here. But I totally agree with you. If you, Even if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, gosh, the Internet, amazing. This is humanity's greatest empathic opportunity ever. Mm. We'll be able to see each other and connect with each other at any time around the world on our own terms. And that's not quite how it's turned out. And I think that that's in part because of the way that online platforms are designed, right? They're designed not to make us happier or more connected, but to keep us online. And mm. what that often means is appealing to our frailties, not our strengths. So maybe appealing to vanity or fear or anger or, or, or even hatred, right? I mean, mm. you think about the way that sort of YouTube works, for instance. There are these now 70% of YouTube views come from the recommendations that come from the site. But those recommendations, in turn, are driven by AI that's just asking the question, what is the catchiest, most sti sticky type of content we can provide people? And that leads people towards extreme, sort of, you know, even very hateful videos instead of towards things that might make them connect with other people. And what's more, it seems like you're also suggesting that if empathy is a skill that we grow, it's perhaps a skill that needs to be grown in the presence of other people? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, so I think of, of it this way, you know, I think of empathy as sort of like a muscle and you can work it out and it will strengthen. But guess what happens if you just lie in bed for a long time? It will mm. weaken. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that in essence, we're sort of not getting the practice that we used to. In fact, there was this study um, where they where they took teenagers. These were sort of middle school children and uh, and and brought them to a camp for a week and made them leave their phones at home. So no Internet, no digital technology of any sort. And they came back and they were slightly but reliably better at understanding what other people felt. Just one week oh, wow. away from technology yeah. improved their empathy uh, measurably. <laughs> I, I imagine many of our listeners are feeling the same way that I'm feeling right now. What is that phone in my pocket doing to me? Oh, dear. You know, there was another study where they put a smartphone between people uh, as they had between strangers as they had a 10 minute sort of get-to-know-you conversation. And other cases, they did not put a phone between them. And mm. just having a phone... This was not one of their phones, by the way, right? Yeah. It was just, just a, a phone. an errant smartphone. Uh -huh. And just having it between them for those 10 minutes made those strangers trust each other and feel less empathy for each other at the end of that conversation. That's so interesting. I mean, cards on the table. I am definitely one of those guys that ever since uh, Bluetooth headphones came out, uh, obviously, I'm into radio, I'm into podcasting, so I walk around all day with those plugged in. And even though you're out in the world seeing people, 
there, there, you really do feel that sense of a shell around you. And uh, that's that's my drug. But I imagine everybody else who's hooked into the technology world has their own, too. Yep. And and again, drug to compare it to a drug is not unfair, in my opinion. You know, again, these technologies designed really to give us bursts of kind of dopamine the same way that gambling might and to keep us engaged. Um, and I think that we need to ask ourselves as a culture, are they keeping us engaged in a way that we approve of, that we feel mm. good about. When you go online, I tell people, do your own, diag- run a diagnostic of yourself. Are you feeling the way that you want to feel? Are you engaging the way that you want to engage? Because again, as with everything else, we have a choice here. Now, let's speak to why we might want empathy to be promoted in the first place, because I could imagine a lot of our listeners thinking to themselves, empathy is all well and good. You might want that in certain circumstances, but may not help you in every circumstances. If you're perhaps in a high stakes negotiation, do you really want to be empathizing with that guy across the table from you? If you are, you know, running a country and you have a a, a very fractious uh, conflict in front of you, does it really help you to be empathizing with that other country? So make the case for empathy? Why is this something that we should want to see more of? Yeah, it's a great question. I think oftentimes we see empathy as like the ultimate soft skill in a hard world, you know, Mm -hmm. like this mushy sort of uh, kumbaya vibe Mm -hmm. um, that can end up costing us a lot, especially in sort of competitive situations. It turns out that, uh, you know, the story is complicated, but to sort of sum it up, basically the opposite is true, that Mm. that, uh, nice guys and gals uh, finish first, not last, right? There's all sorts of evidence that when we empathize and help other people, we also help ourselves. Empathic individuals tend to be happier, less stressed, more professionally successful. They have stronger and better relationships than less empathic individuals. And even in corporate and sort of in in other sort of private sector uh, settings, empathy, when, when there's sort of an empathic Um, uh, uh, culture in an organization, not only is morale and loyalty among employees higher, but teams function more efficiently. And those companies actually perform better, actually have sort of like a whole private sector spiel around sort of reversing the stereotype that empathy gets in the way of the bottom line. In fact, it helps the bottom line in lots of cases. Well, let's dig into a couple of examples where you feel that empathy may improve some of the current events. Uh, We're, you know, all about current events here on KCBS. We can dig into some of those, how empathy can improve some of the very pressing issues that we talk about all the time here and actually uh, make those situations better. Before we dig into that, I want to remind our listeners once again that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We're speaking to uh, Jamil Zaki. He's a professor of psychology at Stanford University, and his new book, once again, is The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. You have a number of examples of things that you think empathy could make better in your book. So let's take a couple of them. The first one I want to dig into is uh, policing. Uh, Policing is obviously something that we talk a lot about and care a lot about here in California. Why do you think empathy could make for better cops? Well, I think that there's a sense, uh, you know, among both police and citizens that there is a growing rift between those groups, right? That police officers, you know, I've interviewed many for the book, um, are by and large wanting to help the people around them. They're service-driven individuals who feel as though they're being typecast as, you know, sort of as as uh, as bad guys by our culture. And I know that they're also interviewed for the book many people who have legitimate fear of police. I think that these groups are 
further and further apart. You know, there's evidence from surveys that we're at the low point for confidence, the public's confidence in police uh, in the 20th century, as well as in a low point for race relations. And so, you know, I think that uh, so in the book, I profile um, Washington State's uh, police training facility um, called the Criminal Justice Training Center, or CJTC. And in 2012, a new director took over. Her name is Sue Rar. Um, she's brilliant. And she basically looked at police culture. She had been doing internal affairs for a long time, sort of looking at police misconduct cases. And she told it, she started to think, I can't explain all of these cases as just bad apples. Maybe there's something about the barrel that's, that needs to be looked at, right? And so what she found is that police officers during their training are, in many cases, um, sort of taught what she would call a warrior mentality. Basically, they're told, you know, you are good people who want to help, but the people around you want to hurt you. You know, and you're taking your life in your hands every time you go on the job. And if you want to stay safe and come home to your family, you need to view yourself as kind of a like a soldier in enemy territory and assume mm -hmm. that everyone out there wants to get you. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a, a really scary way to view the world. And, you know, I think that that it sort of increases police officers stress enormously and in turn makes them feel like their only option in many cases is, is the use of force. That use of force then viewed through the public le lens doesn't seem like it was necessary. So she then she decided, well, maybe if I change the mindset of police officers, I can help them sort of work together with civilians more. And so she adopted what she calls the guardian mindset, the idea mm -hmm. that that um, police officers should be working with the community to keep everybody safe. And she sort of gets this through in classroom, uh, sort of classroom education, but also in these mock drills. And I saw some of these witness them and they're so cool. They're sort of like. These drills were empathy drill drills, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, these drills where cadets come in with kind of wooden guns and they mm. burst into a sort of mock crime scene full of actors who are, you know, acting like people with mental illness or people who are just in dangerous situations. And, and the cadets, in order to graduate, need to learn in these drills, even in these stressful moments, how to deescalate, how to communicate, how to slow down and listen. And since RAR took over, um, not only has have police officers exhibited more empathy in the field as measured by sort of how civilians view them, but use of force has declined across the state. Interesting. And so just to dwell on this for one more second, the story that we are thinking of is the officers are in this situation. They're better able to read what the people in this situation are going through and then better able to understand and interpret what's happening. And therefore, their response is better aligned with uh, what's actually required? I think that's that's a, a great description of it. I mean, I would say that the first step, as Sue sees it, is to is to reduce the stress that comes with the assumption that you are enemies with the person across from you. Right. I mean, if you if you think that everybody around you is is, you know, wants to hurt you or kill you. Imagine how that would feel. Imagine mm. how you would feel. One of my uh, one of the officers that I interviewed, not from the CJTC, but but uh, uh, an, a, actually a professor who used to be a cop, um, told me basically, if you think that you're that 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 you're taking your life in your hands, you can't care about what the person across from you wants. You can't stop and ask them. Whatever they want is immediately secondary to your safety. But oftentimes, it's not actually a matter of life and death. Most of the time. The people that you're dealing with as a police officer are not dangerous at all. Right. Mm. And so part of it, I think that it, part of Sue's philosophy is to start by sort of de-escalating internally the way that police officers feel when they go out into the field. Mm. 
Is it possible to go too far on the empathy spectrum, to be so dominated by your sense of what other people are feeling, so overwhelmed by the emotions that you're seeing in other people's face that either you can't focus on what you should be focusing on or or those feelings just drown out everything else that maybe you, you should be worrying about? Can it go too far? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. And one of the big things, thank you for asking that, one of the big things I want to be clear about is that building empathy doesn't mean turning our empathy up to 11 all the time in every situation. I mean, imagine trying to walk through like the tenderloin if you felt the pain of everybody around you. You'd like collapse immediately. There's so much suffering and we can't possibly take it all in. And doing so wouldn't help people. Mm-hmm. Imagine if your therapist, as you talked with them about your deepest problems, just broke down crying and said, yeah, those are horrible problems. Mm-hmm. That's not what we necessarily want from the people who are there to help us. There was a poll that came out from Pew recently that suggested that um, 70% of Americans suffer from news fatigue. Basically, we're so... (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) My bad. That's on you. Yeah. (laughs) There's so much suffering that we're privy to. And again, this gets back to sort of what does it mean to be part of a global community? Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, that's great. In other ways, we can't help everybody. And feeling their pain is not helpful to us. You know, so burnout is on the rise as well, even it, it, which seems paradoxical, right? I mean, on the one hand, empathy is on the decline, but burnout is on the rise. But mm. that actually could be of a piece because sometimes if we get overwhelmed with empathy, we decide, well, I guess my only option is to just shut it off completely. Mm. One of the things that I want people to know is that you don't have to shut it off completely or turn it on all the time. Empathy is something you can tune the same way that you do the volume on a stereo knob, right? Uh, and, and, and that's, I think, wise empathy is sort of turning it up and down in ways that you want to rather than having it control you or just shut down. Well, very interesting. So a lot of tools that perhaps can be used in this regard. I want to remind our listeners one last time in this program that you are currently listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today we are speaking to Jamil Zaki. He is a professor of psychology at Stanford University. We are talking to him about a main focus of his research, which is empathy, why it is perhaps going away in this world at an alarming rate, and why we should not want that to happen, why we should want to foster more empathy. And his book, One Last Time, is The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. And now is the part of the interview where we're going to focus on that word building. And because you do argue that you can build empathy, and you have put that thought into practice. You actually had a class at Stanford where you took freshmen at Stanford and you gave them opportunities to build empathy. Tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do there and what building empathy, what that actually means. Yeah. So there, you know, again, I feel like it's hard. It's easy to feel hopeless in today's world as though we're going in one direction, drifting further apart and we'll never come back together. Um, But it really is up to us. And there are lots of ways to build empathy. So Uh, The right meditation practices build empathy. Reading fiction builds empathy. Making a diverse group of friends builds empathy. And so I taught a class right this winter called Becoming Kinder that sort of focused on taking the principles that I write about in the book and putting them into practice. So I gave students exercises each weekend, sort of like trips to their own empathy gym, if you will, um, asking them to push themselves to connect with people in new and deeper ways. And I was just so impressed with the work that they put in. But it also, to me, is a proof of concept that anybody can make a choice to try to live a more empathic life. And the more of us who do so, the greater a shot we have as a culture of trying to mend some of the tears in our social fabric. And what kind of results did you see from your students after a semester of this? Yeah, uh, 
one of the things that I remember a bunch of them said is that they were calling their parents more often. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so they were like, they felt more connected to their families. A lot of you them... get a little empathy and start all of a sudden you start feeling guilty for yeah. not calling your mom and dad. <laughs> exactly. I've been there. <laughs> uh, yep. I started calling my, my mom too more. Uh, uh, but yeah, so um, a lot of them also uh, reported feeling more gratitude that they mm. were noticing kindness in their environment more. I think one of the things that happens when you uh, sort of feel disconnected yourself is that it's easier to tune into voices that are cruel in our culture, right? So sometimes, and sometimes the loudest voices in our culture are not the kindest. You think about like the bully on a schoolyard, right? And they might dominate the conversation and make us feel like, oh, the whole world is mean. But I mean, since I wrote this book, I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of people who want and are hungry for uh, a return to connection, a return to empathy and kindness. And I feel like that was one of the things that happened with my students is that they noticed kindness around them more and they kind of became ambassadors for it around campus. Well, to round out the program, maybe the best thing that we could leave our listeners with is just as you gave to your students at Stanford, perhaps you could give all of us a little bit of homework for fostering our own empathy. What, what are some of the things that anybody could do at home? You're, you already mentioned a couple, but let's expand on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on one that, I, that I've been thinking a lot about, which is, you, you know, we talked about technology and its dominant force in our culture. I, I've been ch I challenged my students and I've, I've been challenging a lot of people recently to try to use technology in a kinder and more connected way, right? So the next time that you go onto social media, again, run a diagnostic, ask yourself, what are you using it for? Are you using it to advertise a sort of, uh, sort of I don't know, curated version of who you are? Um, or to snipe at people who feel differently than you do. Um, and if so, maybe see if you can make a different choice. Maybe the next time you go online, try to be vulnerable. Be honest about how your day is going and see whether that invites other people to do the same. Or look up somebody who you've thought about uh, in a kind way but haven't really reached out to and maybe just send them a little message saying that you're thinking about them. Or if you know that someone is struggling, reach out to them and tell them that you care. Oh, all right. Very excellent words to live by. I guess the last, last thing I want to touch on with you, in, in fact, is we've been talking about some of the consequences of losing empathy. And, and you're, you're, you're a psychologist and you study uh, psychology. Uh, I, I, I don't know that social sciences and uh, political science is def necessarily in your wheelhouse. But what are your thoughts on what the world looks like if this trend continues and we continue to lose this empathy muscle that we should have? Uh, my thoughts are that it's really frightening. You know, I mean, I, I wrote the book not because I bl it, it blindly optimistic and think that we will become a kinder world, um, but I think that we can. <laughs> I, I think that our current trajectory is not going in that direction. And I think that if we really lose our common ground, um, then we've lost everything because our culture, when we have nothing in common and when we hate and fear each other, uh, kind of anything can happen. You know, I mean, that's where violence comes from. That's where real so social division becomes political division becomes, you know, becomes even worse. And I, I, I worry a lot. I have two young kids and I worry about the world that they will grow up in. But again, I, I can't emphasize enough that it is at a really important level, maybe more than we realize up to us. And I think that if if we can, if each one of us can become more empathic or work at that, then we can benefit and the people around us will. But if we can get a critical mass of people pushing in this direction, I do think that we can push back. There have been other times in our nation and our world's history where division seemed uh, unavoidable. Think about the time around the civil rights movement. 
but we've made amazing progress. We, we came together even when it seemed impossible. And I think we could do so again. I don't know if we will, but I certainly hope that we do. All right, a call to action right there. And that call is coming from the book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. The author is Jamil Zaki, once again, a professor of psychology at Stanford University. Jamil Zaki, thanks so much for stopping by. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was great. And you can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online. Look for them at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 1069 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 